Chapter Three of Some Everyday Folk and Dawn by Miles Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Becoming acquainted with Grandma Clay. When I returned, the busman was driving away after having brought Miss Flip's uncle, and Andrew was assisting to fill a spring cart with pumpkins. This vehicle had arrived under guidance of a tall, fair young man with perfect teeth and a pleasant smile, which kept them well before the public seeing they were not concealed by any hirsute ambuscade regarding the adorning qualities of which dawn and her grandmother were divided the former came out to inform andrew that the pony had to be harnessed as mrs clay had promised miss flip she could drive her uncle back to catch the train i hope the old thing won't smash up the sulky said andrew he's the old bloke that come down here in the summer in a check suit and i told him you was all out and we was full up a few of him would soon fill up ha 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 laughed the fair young man he looks as if he were always full up <laughs> well he's the purplest plum i ever saw said dawn he's a complete hog he is one of those old noses all blue like the big plums that grew down near the pigsty i think he was grown near the pigsty too by the style of him it must have taken a good many cases of the best wine to get a nose just to that colour like a meerschaum pipe it takes a power of colouring to get him to the right tinge and his eyes hang out like this said the girl audaciously stretching her pretty long-lashed lids in a way that would have been horrible on a less beautiful or less successfully saucy girl but which in this case was irresistibly amusing the fair young man was convulsed his figure is like as if he had swallowed our great washing copper hole and then padded round it with hay bags and he has a great vulgar stand with one foot here and the other over there by the wheelbarrow he must be an acrobat or be made of wonderful elastic if he could stretch that far remarked andrew yes and he gets up a gold-rimmed eyeglass and sticks it on his old eye like this and so i up with my finger and thumb this way in a ring and looked at him said dawn with a moo and the protrusion of a healthy pink tongue which for daredevil impertinence beat anything i had seen off the stage and I succumbed to laughter in chorus with the young man. By some intangible indications, Andrew and I felt impelled to leave, he proceeding to harness the horse, and I accompanying him. "'Just look here, giddy-giddy gout with his shet tail out,' exclaimed the lad, breaking into one of the poetic quotations of which he was rarely guilty. "'Now, I didn't know me pants was tall. I must have looked a goat.' I offered to put a stitch in the breech, so he brought needle and thread. Now don't you sew me on to me pants. Dawn done that once. Thought it was a great lark, and I jolly well couldn't get out. So I busted up the whole show, and Grandma joined in the huspy puspy, and there's been no more larks like that. Thanks. I must do a get and put the pony in. Did you notice that bloke filling up the cart with pumpkins? He's gone on Dawn. He shows good taste. Do you reckon Dawn's fit to knock em in the eye? Rather. That's being a stranger. When you are used to a person every day and they belong to you, you don't think much of em, and at the same time think more, if you can understand. What I mean is this. When I'm busy fighting with Dawn, and she's blowing me up for not doing things and telling Grandma on me, I can't see what the blokes can see in her. But then if I caught anyone saying she wasn't good for anything, if he was a bloke I felt fit to wallop, I'd give him a nice solicker under the ear, and I wouldn't bother about any other girl. Do you see? Yes. I'll hold up the shafts for you. Thanks. 
Well, that's Dora Ewood that's doin' a kill with Dawn now. Dora is a funny name for a man. It ain't his name. He's called it for a lark because he was after a girl up in town named Dora Cowper. She serves in a hay and corn store at the corner. Things were getting on pretty strong, and he used to be taking her out all hours of the night and day. Some reckon she's better looking than Dawn, and her mother put it around that Ewood would make a brilliant match for her, and that shoot him off at once. I reckon if I was a girl and wanted to catch a man, I'd hold me mag about it, as I know two or three now has been turned off the same way. Perhaps Dora Cowper didn't lose much. Well, he has a bosca farm, you see. He keeps a power of pigs and fattens em. Then he went after one or two more girls, and now he comes here. Buying these pumpkins is only a dodge to get a chip in with Dawn. He has plenty of loosen for his pigs, but we have so many pumpkins rotting, we are glad to get rid of them at two bob a load, and I suppose that is cheap to get a yarn with Dawn. He ain't proposed to Dawn yet, but I am sure he's going to, because I asked him if he was going to marry Dora Cowper, and he said no. Dawn is only pulling his leg for him. She's got all the blokes on a string. You should see her with those that comes up in the summer. It's worth being alive in the summer. We had melons here in millions. We used to open a big Dixie or Cuban Queen and just only claw out the middle. We used to fill the water cask with them to cool. And every time Dawn came out to dive in her dipper, wouldn't she rouse? Me and Uncle Jake used to race to see who could eat the most, but he beat. He's a solicitor to stuff when he gets anything he likes. It's a wonder we didn't bust. The oranges will soon be ripe. That's good luck. I can eat eighty a day, easy. Here comes old Bolivar. A huge figure, as described by Dawn, came out of the house in company with Miss Flip, and I recognised Mr. Paunch, the heavy swell who had travelled in the bus with me on the day of my first arrival in Noonoon. With repulsive clumsiness, he climbed into the vehicle, and then said roughly, almost brutally, to his niece, "'Get in! Get in!' and scarcely gave her time to be seated, ere he hit the pony and nearly screwed its jaw off, getting out of the yard. "'Cock-a-doodle-doo! Ain't it nice to have a sweet temper?' loudly remarked Andrew, as he stood aside. "'He just is a purple plum. He's the kind of old cove I like to get real narked and then scoop. Wouldn't he splutter and think himself Lord Muck, and that every one ought to be licking his boots?' Dawn and Dora Ewart were still hanging over a garden fence as Andrew went after his cows, and I betook myself to the house. Uncle Jake was in conference with his sister, and gave evidence of fearing I should pursue him, so I mercifully betook myself to my own apartment. Miss Flip presently returned, and saying she had had tea uptown with her uncle and would not want any more, shut herself in her room, from whence I soon detected the sound of impassioned sobbing. My first impulse was to ask her what was the matter, but my second, born of a wide experience of grief, led me to hold my tongue and tell no one what I had heard. But to escape from the sound of that pitiable weeping, I went out into the garden, where I was joined by Mrs. Clay. "'Did you see that young feller out there this afternoon? Fine stamp of a young man, don't you think?' remarked she. "'He should be able for a good day's work.' "'Yes, he's none of your tobacco-spittened, wizened-up little runts "'like you see hanging on to the corner-posts in the noon. "'Seems to admire your granddaughter, "'and is not the first by a long way that has done that, "'though she was only nineteen this month. "'I can quite believe it. She is a lovely girl. "'And more than that, a good one. 
I've never had one moment's uneasiness with Dawn. She took after me that way. I could let her go out into the world anywhere with no fear of her going astray. She's got a fine way with men, friendly and full of life, but let em attempt to come an inch farther than she wants and then see. Sometimes I'm inclined to wish she'd be a little more genteeler, but then I look around and see some of them sleek things, and it's always them as are no good, and I'm glad that she's what she is. There's some girls here in town. The old lady grew choleric. You'd think butter wouldn't melt in their mouths, and they try to sit on dawn. It's because they're jealous of her, that's what it is. I wouldn't own em. They'd run a man into debt and be a curse to him. But there's dawn, the man that gets her. He'll have a woman that will be of use to him, and not just an ornament. He'll have an ornament, too. Perhaps so. I've spent a lot of money on her education. She's been taught painting and dancing. I had her down at the ladies' college in Sydney for two years, finishing, and she's had more chances of being a lady than most. Some of these things in town here turn up their noses at her, and say, she's only old Mrs. Clay's granddaughter who keeps an accommodation house. But I pay me bills, and ain't ashamed to walk up town and look em all in the face. But it's generally those who owe the most who have the most lordly man. You're right. I could point you out some of them uptown as hasn't a shirt to their back, and they look as they owned everything. The brazenest things! The old dame's indignation waxed startling in its intensity. But I was going to tell you about young Eward. I've set me heart on him for dawn. He's something worth looking at and worth having too. He knows how to farm and make it pay, and owns one of the best pieces of land about Noonan, all his own. Dawn don't seem to take to him as she ought. He was after a girl here in town, a Dora Cowper, and so she says she ain't going to take any leavings. But he ain't any leavings, she can be sure of that, for if he'd wanted Dora Cowper, they'd have snapped him up, and I think as long as a young fellow don't go making too much of a fool of a girl, a little flirtation's only natural. This has been the mischief with Dawn. There's a lot of people here in the summer from the city, and they're all taken with her, and for everlasting telling her she's wasting her talents here, that she ought to be on the stage. It's a wonder people can't mind their own concerns. The old dame grew choleric again. It makes her think what I can give her ain't good enough. It's all very fine in a good comfortable home of her own, with love and protection around her, to think people mean that sort of thing and that when she walked out in the world they would be anxious to worship her. Just let her go out and try, and she'll find it all moonshine. But when I tell her, she only thinks I'm a old pig, and only she's that stubborn I know she'd never come back. I would be the same myself when young, so can't blame her. I'd let her have a taste of hardship to bring her to a baron's, but while I'm alive she'll never have my consent to be an actress. When I was young they was looked upon as the lowest hussies, I'd like to hear what my mother would say if I had wanted to be one, patin' myself up and kicking up my heels and showing myself before men in the loudest manner. I concluded not to divulge my profession while at Clay's, and to boot, I held much the same point of view. She thinks she'd like to marry some fine feller and be a toff, and she's got this danger that's always a drawback of a girl being pretty. So many fellers come after them at the start, they get finicky and think they can marry anyone and leave it too late, and in the end they marry some rubbishing feller and don't come out half so well as the plain ones that was content with a fair thing when they had the chance of it. Just the same with a boy. It's a bad thing for them to be able to do everything. They're so terribly smart, they end up by doing nothing, and the plodden feller they grinned at for being a booby because he stuck to one thing comes out on top. 
Just so. Want of concentration plucks one every time. That's what I want to save Dawn from. It's all right while I live, and I don't want her to be chucking herself at the head of any Tom or Dick, but I won't live forever, and marriage is like everything else. You want to have your eye on a good thing, and not humbug too much. When I'm gone, the austere old face softened. I wouldn't like to think of her I've spent so much money on, and reared with my own hand, as I did her and her mother before her, growing old and sour and lonely, or being a slave to some worthless crawler. The old voice grew perilously soft, and saved itself from a break by a swift crescendo. As I say, I suppose she's waiting for some great impossible feller to come along, like we do when we're young. But these upper ten is the worst matches a girl can make. And besides, there's too many trying to catch them in their own rank. I've had lots of em here, and to see these swell girls, the way they try to catch someone, would make you ill. Don't you think so? Well, my sympathies are always with the swell girl in the matrimonial market, I replied. She has a far harder time than those of the working classes. You see, so many of the well-to-do eligibles prefer working girls, actresses, chorus singers and barmaids, which, in addition to marriage in their own class, gives these girls a chance of stepping up. Whereas the swell girls cannot marry grooms and footmen and raise them to their rank as their brothers can their housemaids and ballet girls, to be a success the society girl must marry a man of sufficient means to keep her as an expensive toy, and this description of bachelor being scarce in any case. Little wonder she has to hunt hard and tries to protect her preserves from poachers. Think of it that way. There is a lot in that, and that's why I'd like to see Dawn have young Ewood, who's a man I'd be happy to leave her to. But I daren't say a word. She's mighty touchy and would flash up that she'd leave if I want to get rid of her. But while I've got breath in my body, there's one thing I will set me foot on, and that's these good-for-nothing skunks like bankers' sons and them sort of high and mighty pauper nobodies they're fearful matches for anyone. I know too much about the swells in the old families of the colony. I'm thankful I ain't one of them. My father came out here a long time ago, and I was born out here. He was a sergeant in the police. I'm near seventy-six, and can remember playing for seventy years back in the days when there was plenty of convicts. And me father, seeing his position, was put to see the flogging of them. Me and another little girl that's dead now, used to climb up a tree and look over the wall like children would. We were stationed in Goulburn then, and I'll never forget the scenes to me dying day. The men used to be stripped to the waist and tied on a triangle and walloped till they was cut to pieces, till they screamed like little children for mercy, and poor old wretches that had roamed the world for sixty years used to screech, Mother! Mother! like little children. It was heart-rendering. And what used they to be flogged for, do you think? for the piggishness of the swells, mostly, I'll tell you. There was an old fellow lived out at Caligua. That's more than twenty miles the other side of Goulburn, and there's Parry's Lagoon there called after him till this day. He was an old Lord Muck, if ever there was one, and by reason of that got a land grant and men assigned, and he ought to have been give to them to kick, would have been the right thing. And then he had a lot of skunks of sons, took after their father, of course, and hadn't had much chance of being anything else and when they used to ride to town they used to have a man tied to the stirrup just to hold it. What was that for? What was it for? she raged. It was because they was those skunks of swells that think other people is only made as floor wipes for em. and this fellow used to have to run all the way to town, and if he hadn't strength to run all the way he'd be dragged, and if he'd give any lip the parries would report em, 
and me father says he's often seen em flogged till their backs were like ploughed and then have to run the twenty miles home me father used to come in every day and fling hisself down and cry and sob as if his heart would break and say he'd rather starve than stay in the police now the parry's got up and one of them had a sir sent out to his name and you'll see em writ about as one of the few old families and i hold that dawn come from better stock than them and has more to be proud of in a grandfather he had some heart in him and lord there's miss flip's uncle one look at him ought to be sufficient warning to any girl the likes of him is common among the swells too much stuffin and drinkin and debauchery nice thing if dawn married a swell and he developed into an old pig like that i can tell you another great family of swells the goburns entertained the royalties when they was out here and as such bugs one of em married the governor's daughter they got up about the same way in the old days when things were carelesser and land wasn't much the old cock of all had the surveyor that was gone on his daughter measurin' the land and got him to slice in great pieces by false measurement and work the lives out of convicts as big a brute as the parries that's the breed of the swells and i have a horror of them the people as i consider ought to be the swells in this country is them that came out first the free emigrants and honestly worked up the colony with their own hands and their children done the same for four or five generations them's the only proper australian aristocracy we've got that's why i have such a contempt for this rooney molyneux mrs bray was tellin of only times is different he'd be the same he's got that sort of pride that thinks his wife is a black gin because she was only a milliner out past the placard advertising mrs clay's boats gleamed the high road and from where we walked could be seen a now unused old stone mile peg carved in roman lettering its legend differing somewhat from that in modern figures painted on the miniature wooden post by which it had been deposed it was one of many relics of the dead and gone convicts who had done giant pioneer labour in this broad bright land in the days when grandma clay's mother had been young fine old grandma daughter of a fine old dad who had wept for the cruelty endured by the men who had worked in chain-gangs and were flogged under his superintendence and thinking thus i turned to the old dame who had ceased talking and said and what of your father did he get away from seeing the convicts flogged yes me mother thought he was goin mad he used to sob in his sleep and call out and squirm that he couldn't bear to see them flogged and leap up in bed in a sweat so we gave up the police and we went a long way farther back to gulgul on the yarrangung a tributary of the murrumbidgee the train in them days was only a little way out of sydney and me father got a job of drivin cob and co coaches from gulgul to yarrandogee and me and me mother and sisters and jake there used to live in a little tent at the first stage out of gulgul and take care of the horses i was fond of them horses and used to sneak out to harness them on the swingle bar when i was no higher than the table it's a wonder i didn't get me brains knocked out i was a lot smarter than jake there with the horses though it ain't supposed to be a girl's work but it came natural to me and i think in that case it's right that's why i was never one to narrow girls down and say you mustn't do this and that because you're a girl i've always found in spite of their talk the best and gamest mothers is the ones that grew out of the tomboy girls well it come that me father bein a steady man and very kind and well liked he got on surprisin and soon the tent gave place to a bark hut that's the way people worked up in my days 
and what they had was their own. They didn't want to starve in mansions and eat off silver at the expense of others like in these times. After that we moved a long way down, and took up a position on the Murramurra run beside the Sydney road, where the coaches passed in the night. I mean mother made hot coffee for the passengers, and we drove a roaring trade, had to get girls in to help, and put up a large accommodation house, and respectable people always made to us. The old head went high and the eyes flashed. Because we was clean temperance people, there never was no DTs or sly grog where we had the rule, and that's why I always like to have a few people in the house to this day. I'm used to their company like, and feel there's nothing going on or doing without them. Well, I grew up in time. I can't say it myself, but them as knew me then could tell you I wasn't disfigured in any way or a cripple, and had no lack of admirers. Me and my two sisters had em by the score, waitin' till we grew old enough to be married. I can tell you, there were some smart fellows among em. Those were the times. Me sisters made what is called swell matches, and not being used to being cooped up, their lives was failures. I was the only one married in me own circle, and my life was a pattern to the others. I was the oldest and waited last, and me mother was that disappointed in me that I had to run away and I have my reasons for fear and dawn is on for a swell. I seen me sisters' lives. I call them unwholesome marriages when girls marries these fellas, and their narrow-minded people sits on her, and is that depraved they turn him again her. Mrs. Clay was vehement. When Dawn's mother grew up, she was Dawn's image, and we was keepin' her accommodation house too. That is, Jim Clay and me, and Dawn's mother was reckoned the prettiest and best girl in them parts, and had lovers from far and near. But there came a feller up from Sydney to stay. Nothing to blow about neither, but he was dreadfully gone on my daughter. He seemed all right, but I was again him, being a swell, till me daughter threatened she'd run away with him if I didn't let her have him peaceful. And remembering me own youth, I let her have him in spite of me misgivings. She went home with him, and it appears he was like these crawling fellers. Couldn't do nothing, only what their parents give them and when they found he'd married a fine, good, wholesome girl, instead of one their own style, one of the Parries, for instance, they cut him off with a shillin', and poor thing she nearly starved, and took to work to keep him, and he always growling at her like the coward he was, that only for her he'd have been well off. A mess alliance, his people called it, but the mess wasn't from poor Mary's side. Well, when it come that she was to be a mother, his people took her in and told her, if you please, that if it was a boy they'd take it theirselves and educate it fit for their family, but if it was a girl they wouldn't. The poor thing, not being able for anything and too proud to come home, stood their insults as long as she could, and at last she sneaked out at night and set off to walk to me. It is pitiable to think of. The poor old voice trembled. She had more than a hundred miles to travel, and it took her days. But some folk was good, and one cold night, about three hours before daylight, she startled me by coming into my room. I remember it like yesterday. Mother, she says, I'm ill. I'm going to die. You won't let them take my child, will you? I thought her wonderin', and she was so gentle it frightened me. For we was always saucy ladies, I can tell you, every one of us, and you can see Dawn is the same now. But that's only a way. When I'm ill, she's as tender as anything. It's, Grandma, wouldn't this do you good? 
and that do you good, and her little hands is very clever and nice about my old bones when they ache. Well, her mother was took bad, and me and her father done our best, and her baby came into the world. A poor miserable little whingin thing, and its mother turnin' over said, What's that light, mother, coming in? Is it the dawn? And lookin' up I see it was the dawn, and she never spoke again, but went off simple and sudden just then, and that's how dawn come to get her name. I never thought as she'd live to be called by it, though. Little whingin thing. Had to feed her on the bottle, and everything disagreed with her. We had to keep her old cow a special. I remember her as clear as yesterday. A big old cow with a dew lap and crumpled horn. We called her Ladybird because she was spots all over. As for them getting dawn, they had the cheek to write and say if it was a boy they'd take it. They had the cheek after what happened. That swells for you again. I writ them one letter in return that I reckon ought to last them to their dying day. I told them it wasn't any matter to them what my child was, that they had murdered one already. Let that be sufficient for them, that they'd get no more unless over my dead body, and that all I regretted was that the child had any of their cowardly blood in it, that it almost discouraged me about its rearing. And Dawn don't know a name, and won't, unless she's married. Her father married again, and I'm glad to say never had another child, and I believe Hank is for Dawn, and he will hanker for my part, and I've got Dawn tooted up again him too. Now you can see the blow it would be to me if she took up with a swell. There's no happiness marrying out of your own religion or class. Mine was what I'd call a love match now. Jim Clay was a lover. I've seen him come in a team of five, all buckin', and it's snowin' and never anything but a laugh out of him. He'd ride miles and miles to see me. The crawlers about these parts nowadays trottle about on bikes or sit like great-grandfathers in sulkies and if it was to sprinkle they'd think half a mile too far to go to see their sweetheart. I think the heart of the world must be dying out. "'You'll tell me about Jim Clay, won't you?' I said, for I am an Australian, one of those you consider entitled to be termed a real aristocrat. My people for several generations have practically worked in the building of the state, though I must admit they belong to the leisured class at home.' Well, that ain't nothin' again em when they don't make it nothin' again em, if you understand. If a swell can prove hisself as good and useful a man as another, he deserves the credit, and comes out ahead too, because he has the education, and sometimes that is useful. I'll tell you about me young days. Lately me mind seems to be goin' back more and more to old times. Grandma, Grandma, called Dawn's rich young voice, come to tea. Andrew and Carrie want to go up to town after. As I turned and looked at this glowing vision, I laughed to think of her as a little whingin thing, and was grateful to the good offices of old Lady Bird with the dew lap and a crumpled horn. You needn't be in such a hurry all of a sudden, said Grandma crossly. It's a different tune when you're hanging over the fence talking somewhere. There's no hurry rounding me into tea then. We lingered a while, watching the afterglow above the great range dividing the coastland from the vast stretches of the interior, and which was no longer an impassable barrier to the people of the state. Now the train toiled over a stile-like way connecting east and west, and Noonoon and Kangaroo, divided by a mile and the river, nestled immediately at the foot of the zigzag climb. They lay asleep against the ranges in a slow-going world of their own, their little houses gleaming white in the fading light. 
There was a flush on the old woman's face as she turned houseward, also an afterglow. T'was a fitting nook for her present days, the decline of those splendidly vigorous years behind. What satisfaction to look back on strenuous, fruitful years and be able to afford rest during the last stages. I too had rest, but it was only the ignominious idleness of a young boat with a broken propeller, yarded among honourably worn-out craft to await a foundering. End of chapter 3